This episode is dedicated to Rio B, Alma Gallegos, Eric Hoff, and Monica Gomez for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. This is Sam. This is Stephen. This is Angel. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have Angel Marti and Steven Lewis from No Olympics. Welcome to the show. What's going on, guys? Thanks for having us, Sam. So we recently had the 2021, or is it the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo? I'm sure uh, one of you can explain that better. But we also had an episode previously with Professor Nadia Kim discussing environmental justice and how environmental issues disproportionately harms different groups of Angelinos. With the Olympics coming to Los Angeles in 2028, it raises the question of whether this will harm Los Angeles or not. Now we've done several episodes in the past with regards to worker sports, worker Olympics, and the fascist history of the Olympics, but we haven't done a deep dive on modern neoliberal Olympics. So I think the best place to start is by telling us what No Olympics is and how it started. No Olympics is a autonomous volunteer org coalition with a couple other groups out here in Los Angeles, like Stop LAPD Spying, Los Angeles Street Watch, and Los Angeles Tenants Union. It originally grew out of the uh, DSA, LA's uh, Housing and Homelessness Chapter, in 2017. Um, when we started this org, or when this when when the Olympics was established, the mayor Eric Garcetti was out literally one out of every three days. He was out of office, not in LA. Um, so it kind of started as a website, um, watching watching that, and then evolved into the coalition and again the autonomous org that we know today. How did you both get involved with this? Uh, well, I have been a member of DSALA since uh, uh, 2017, uh, a little after the creation of No Olympics. And uh, I think through some of my involvement with uh, the housing and homelessness work, uh, I learned about No Olympics and I thought that uh, being able to organize around a particular event and uh, a particular sort of nucleus where you can say, hey, this particular thing is connected to all this different sources of corporate greed, and it has this effect, this effect, this effect. It has the effect of like gentrification, increased police surveillance. I just thought it was um, such a smart way of organizing uh, that I hadn't really seen before. And um, when I was probably at my highest level of involvement was specifically two years ago when we actually uh, went to Tokyo uh, for uh, a conference where we met primarily with Japanese organizers at the time organizing against the uh, Olympics that just happened. But there were also a few uh, participants from uh, a few other countries from South Korea, uh, from Indonesia, from Brazil. Uh, and uh, I was the only uh, only one in DSALA somehow uh, who felt confident enough in their Japanese to uh, act as an interpreter. So that that's that's how I came to be a little bit more closely related. I got I got involved. Honestly, man, I am like I'm sure most of the <laughs> listeners on this podcast. Um, I'm a pretty pretty obsessive, pretty big sports fan. Um, and when you learn the details of the Los Angeles Olympic bid. You can't help but walk away and feel like it's a stadium owner relocation grift um, that seems to plague sports all the time, except in this case, it happens on a global scale, and it happens every four years, every two, technically, if you want to do winter and summer. Um, and it gets even more insulting when you learn that Los Angeles had this event in 1984, and it did not work well. 
it gets even more insulting when you find out that this was not a democratic process, that voters didn't decide to bring the bid here, um, that there was no that there was no consensus or, or uh, democratic interest in bringing the games here. And it gets even the most maddening when, you know, you spend a little bit of time in this city and you see the issues that Angel was talking about um, plaguing the city, specifically the inequity and the the. Uh, the, the homelessness, the unhoused crisis, this is a human rights crisis at this point. And to think that the biggest priority that we need to have, both in terms of budget and in terms of just kind of cultural focus, is throwing a party for the elite in seven years, eight years. It's pretty grotesque, you know? So it's kind of all just added up for me. And again, if you're a sports fan, you know that no matter how futile or ostensibly futile uh, your rooting interests may be, you have to scream and give it your all because the alternative is to just kind of lose in silence. And I certainly was not interested in that. We're going to win. I'm not, I'm not trying to sound defeated. I'm a New York sports fan. So (laughs) I might sound defeated. Like we're, we're, we're going to win. This is definitely bids have been canceled before. Um, This bid in particular has bounced around a couple of different cities who had varying levels of referendums and didn't want it. It's happened in Denver. It got canceled. Uh, previously in, I believe the 1970s, like it can be done. I would like, you know what I'm saying? I want to urge it in, in the same way that like, yeah, sports, sports upsets, people don't come back from a three, one lead. I New York giants. Don't be the 18 and no New England Patriots. Like team Queens doesn't cancel the Amazon headquarters, H2 headquarters until it does. And I think the same thing is the way to think about this. Like this is not set in stone. It's been announced for a while, but it's still seven years away. And like they're they're hoping that sports fans just do the sports fan thing, just are happy that sports are coming, and don't think any critically beyond that. And we're we're gonna win because we have plenty of time to organize and plenty of time to get the word out. So, how did either of you come to realize there was something fishy about the Olympics, and it wasn't this beautiful, pure thing that it's painted out to be? So before I was fully politically radicalized, uh, I was an amateur wrestler. I wrestled on, I was the captain of my team's wrestling, of my high school wrestling team. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you're an amateur wrestler, if you're not somebody who thinks that, uh, the next logical step is professional wrestling, which I did have a brief career in that, uh, uh, for another episode, um, you know, you know that the Olympics is kind of like the highest level of competition. And so, but then when you learn about what it takes to be an Olympic level athlete, uh, I just remember just being like, oh, so literally you're just like living off of sponsorships. Like you just, you have no support other than like successfully applying for some kind of corporate patronage. Uh, that always, that, you know, that always seemed to, to uh, bum me out. And then I think more, more recently, like when the Sochi Olympics happened, that was, that was before, you know, I was a DSA member, but it was like, that was just such a, uh, a quagmire of obvious, um, uh, failures and mismanagement that then when I, when I became more politically mature and then found out about no Olympics, I was like, ah, okay. Yeah. This all, this all makes sense that this would be a good target. What about you, Steven? I would say, um, I, I was radicalized. Um, I was radicalized through hip hop as a text, as a culture. Um, I've managed artists. I've written for magazines about, Hip hop, very much a tourist in the space, but it's something that's defined my whole life and helped me understand who I am and understand the country I live in. And when you think about West Coast hip hop, you typically think of Weed Smoke, uh, 6-4 Impalas, uh, Vocoder, and, you know, Funkadelic and Zap samples. But to me, the lasting, like, enduring thing about Golden Era Los Angeles West Coast hip hop is the idea of fuck the police, the idea of gangster rap. Uh, explicitly saying, this is what happens in our neighborhoods. Police harass us, police shoot us, police lock us up. You don't get to hear the other side until now. You know, everything from Ice-T, 6 in the morning, to Ice Cube, NWA, kind of sets that standard. Now, we look at it today, it's a global, you know, it's a cultural phenomenon. It's a, it's a, the idea of fuck 12 and and, and fuck the police is, is, is deeply woven into, especially as we saw last year with the, what I've heard friends call the a cab spring. Like, like it's, it's kind of, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's kind of in vogue now, but how did we get there? Well, we got there because specifically artists from the Los Angeles area, Compton, Watts, South Beach, Englewood, um, were rapping about brutal, unlawful, 
disgusting, grotesque police behaviors. So it doesn't take too much to put together that the entire cultural phenomenon of gangster rap and the and the fuck the police idea comes directly from the LA cops in the 80s who were harassing these dudes. Now it only takes one more step to realize, well, how did they get this way? You could say, of course, police have come from slave catchers. You know, there was a Watts riot in 66. Uh, but the easiest way to tee this up, the easiest way to explain how we got to a place that artists were on record screaming for justice and screaming to sell records about how fucked up this all was, was because of the 1984 Olympics. L.A. hosted it. L.A. Police Chief Daryl Gates was giving like carte blanche access, like total freedom to clean up the area, which is I don't need to spell that out for your listeners. It resulted in serious spikes of mass incarceration, entire parts of South L.A. Uh, just getting locked up, wiped out or worse. I don't know if folks have seen Straight Outta Compton, the F. Gary Gray movie, but that opening scene where they take like a battering ram through the dope house, like that legit happened. That happened in 1987. Um, that's part of Operation Hammer and like Daryl Gates's whole thing, which was directly to clean up LA in the ways that him and his people saw fit. So when you look at the idea of gangster rap and fuck the police, it came from a specific level of police abuse from a specific time and place. And we're going to let that happen again. We're going to let in, in the era of Black Lives Matter, in the era of Los Angeles considering itself a, a, a progressive bastion, and, and in this era specifically of sports and activism in a, in a post-Kaepernick world, like we're going to do this again, really, really. Like it's that, that's, that to me is when I kind of got twisted up, so to speak. So help me wrap my mind around this. How far ahead do cities bid to be a site for the Olympics? I know the process differs. I know that specifically this bid was originally for the 2024 games. Um, and that was, that was set in September, 2017. So that would be a whole set. What would that would be? That would be a whole seven years out. However, I know that cities have to develop bids first. Los Angeles was in a competing bid agreement with other cities before those cities dropped out. <laughs> so, um, we got the 2028, which was supposed to be the 2024, but that was really only because cities who had done this much planning this far out, a decade in, uh, either faced significant pushback um, or otherwise just couldn't couldn't get it together. Uh, Stephen, can you actually remind me of something? I was I was I was trying to remember this um, correctly, but didn't Boston get the bid first, and then some organizers were able to convince Boston to? not were able to like get Boston to say, no, we're not going to do it. And then LA got it. Or am I thinking of something else? To my recollection, Boston and Rome were both two cities that were linked with the 2024 bid before ultimately dropping it. I see. I see. I see. Yes. It's proven. It's proven not to be popular. Um, Budapest had a bid for it that went under. Um, and yeah, Rome, Rome in 2014, I believe. Um, under uh, Matteo Renzi started bidding for the 2024 Olympics. Um, but the 20, yeah, by 2016, it looks like um, the bid was done. The bid was done because Rome had been opposed to hosting the games, hosting the games. There had been an organized level of uh, a protest movement around the quote unquote fiscal irresponsibility of hosting the Olympics. Um, and yeah, that bid was, that bid was suspended in 2016. So before LA was even able to get into the cities like Rome, had fully gone through the motions, faced citizen outrage, and uh, withdrew their bids. When I hear bid, I think of like an auction. So knowing nothing about this, how does that bidding process work? How does that selection process work? Are cities actually like offering up, like we'll pay you a certain amount to become a host city? The way that bids become selected in addition to financial incentives, uh, X, Y, Z, is that the mayors make the pitch. Uh, Eric Garcetti was all around the world, not just the country, but the world, talking to global elites, explaining to them why Los Angeles was, in his view, uniquely qualified and fit to host the Olympics. Um, when you hear it from just the mayor himself, you don't get to hear about um, citizen opposition. You don't get to hear about potential consequences. You hear from a, an elected official who will be well out of office by that point that his territory is in his own words the best place to host this thing bar none and nobody there is incentivized or uh 
or has any reason to not believe that. So to answer your question, it's pretty aggressive campaigning on behalf of the mayor himself. This bid also came together um, due to two multi-billionaires who are kind of kingpins in the LA media world. Names are Casey Wasserman and Rick Caruso. They both have pretty distinguished histories of being just abjectly shitty people, but the key is that they're both pretty big media makers. Wasserman is an investor in so many media properties and has his own PR firm. Um, I love to mention this kind of a pro pro of almost nothing, but his PR firm was the one advising Papa John to not say the N word. <laughs> he was having that whole thing happen. That whole kerfuffle. The one good thing that Casey <laughs> Wasserman did was tell Papa John. <laughs> let me let me let me clarify that. I, that is good advice. <laughs> How much did they have to pay him to give that advice? Fantastic question. But he recently put up his like Bel Air man- mansion for like 125 million dollars. One of his properties. He's a very very wealthy man. Rick Caruso, uh, who's a USC guy and a Mitch McConnell booster. Um, put up even more for it. These are media magnates who control LA, which is the entertainment and information capital of the country. So it becomes almost like how is LA's bid not going to get accepted when you consider the circumstances, you know? Yeah, these are people who in all likeliness probably have drunken human blood at some point. Like, it's just one of those, <laughs> it's like, I, I'm, I'm sort of joking, but it's like if I found out that that was true, I would not be shocked at all. These are the, just those kinds of ghouls. Just don't underestimate how much there is an incentive and a profit motive across the ruling class, specifically in America. The people who are funding the bid are the same people who work in the same town as the media companies who profit off of it. And in NBC's case, um, build, you know, build entire financial packages around it. There's a lot of incentive for it. Um, it goes hand in hand with the fact that the Rams and Chargers Two teams that, as we're talking about with Stadium Grift, were from St. Louis and San Diego, respectively, who now both got a massive, ginormous, publicly funded stadium in Inglewood at SoFi Stadium that displaced a whole lot of people. It's like, you know, they're all, like Angel said, this, it's, a, it's a coalition of evil. They're all in it for the same reasons. And in L.A., when you have a lot of power, don't underestimate just how easy it is to manifest that power in entertainment, in news, and in the sports world. So the bidding process then sounds like it's a lot of backdoor lobbying that we don't have privy to, we as in the general public, and it's not going to be covered in the mainstream news. But if you do some digging, you could kind of see what's really happening, kind of like regular politics. Oh, absolutely. It's completely opaque. Like I remember uh, when we were uh, in Tokyo, like there were just these uh, sort of like, uh, I'm doing air quotes, uh, press conferences that were really just sort of like these PR management events with like the different, uh, like the Tokyo, uh, the 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 sorry, the Tokyo Olympic Committee and the IOC and and all the different like security firms and stuff involved in you know basically you know policing the city during the during the games. Now Wasserman sounds really familiar. Isn't he also an investor in like media news companies, maybe even some progressive ones? Um. I think I think we're all referring to the same. I think I think we all know what we're talking about here. The thing the thing with Casey Wasserman is it isn't even just what he's invested in. It's him himself. He himself. Um, I'm of the radical belief that nobody with that radical amount of wealth, power, um, and resource should have much of a say in what the city gets to do, in what the health of the city is. Um, very similarly to Jeffrey Katzenberg, who is a name that kind of just popped off in LA this summer. He is a uh, former DreamWorks guy who invested, who, who invented and invested in Quibi. Uh, Quibi was the incredibly short, <laughs> short bite series that lasted even shorter than its short bites. Um, he was just giving, you know, closed, closed door meetings with various members of the LA City Council to directly influence and adopt. A piece of anti-homeless, uh, uh, you know, a piece of uh, anti-houseless legislation that he he might as well have directly authored. And LA, I'm sure this is the case in all, you know, modern cities, but especially in LA, people with power really do have an outsized say in what the city gets to do and cannot do. And the city's fighting for its soul right now in terms of a hundred 
thousand people out on the streets due to the failings of capitalism and the regulatory state. We have our uh, our mountains are on fire and our air is becoming unbreathable. And we might have a recall in our governor um, who also sucks, but like still, like there's a lot of shit to worry about right now in this city as jobs get hollowed out and the eviction moratorium passes and as our smog just suffocates us, like you, you shouldn't have a say in what we're going to do and what we're planning for for the future. That should be the people's say. And uh, it, it really doesn't help that just Mayor Garcetti is just such a shameless star fucker. Like, it's just like, even when he's in LA, he's like on Jimmy Kimmel or just like, there's never a time where he's not like meeting with somebody famous and trying to get them to come to LA or just like promote LA as a brand. He's like, He's like if a, he's like an Instagram tummy tea influencer, but for an entire city. It's like he has that kind of like vibe where he's just like, you know, type in, you know, uh, no homeless at checkout and get 50 percent off. With the L.A. Olympics, was it just the city of L.A. and these power players involved or does it also involve the state and even like the U.S. government? It involves the state in the sense that um much like when cities host Super Bowls or uh, award shows, uh, the Olympics are something called an MSSE, a National Special Security Event. It sounds like a whole lot of jargon, but it's a really big deal because it does then give federal purview and authority uh, to a bunch of different operations. One thing as a sports fan and a hip-hop fan I can touch on, um, I don't know if Sam, Angel, you remember this, but the morning that the Super Bowl, the Rams were in the Super Bowl, the morning of the Super Bowl in Atlanta, 21 Savage was arrested. I don't know if you guys remember that. Oh, I think, yeah, I think I might have heard about that. That was a really big deal because that was, that was ICE. That was ICE federally cooperating right. due to the fact that the Super, it was the morning of the Super Bowl. That's not a coincidence. So for something like LA, in terms of power players, we've seen people like Sheriff Alex Villanueva, who's facing a recall of his own due to some intensely corrupt bullshit um we see him calling for the hiring of three thousand more cops and 500 more sheriffs that is getting the state involved you know what i'm saying specifically when we look at la which is uh, more people here speak spanish than they do english um it's not an official sanctuary city despite kind of the love is love language that gets parroted around here like it's not a sanctuary city which means that ICE would have free range to come in here in the name of the Olympics and do whatever it deems necessary. Needless to say, we think that's really bad. Yeah, the city of Flag of LA should be an ICE deportation van, but like with a coexist bumper sticker on it. Like that sums up sort of the spirit of Los Angeles. <laughs> Literally, though, like it doesn't it doesn't add up. And to host the Olympics here, even in the name of, you can look at, um, they've launched these things called like Play Equity Fund, which is like the black athletes on the Chargers, Rams, Lakers, Clippers, whatever, uh, like co-opting Black Lives Matter language around sports. Like you can't argue with a clean conscience that that LA can host the Olympics and collaborate with ICE if it doesn't have sanctuary city policies like legislatively in place. It does not. So you're just asking for people to get rounded up and killed. You're hoping, hoping that you can look away from that or that the news doesn't cover it or that the, the harm is mitigated, whatever that looks like to you. But like agreeing to have the Olympics is essentially signing a bunch of people to their death. Now, has L.A. already begun to prep for the Olympics? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the preparation was underway, uh, you know, once they got the bid. But it's like they're the... There's there's this thing called the LA 1984 Foundation, uh, which maybe Stephen can explain a little bit more about what they are. But they're sort of just like this, you know, financial trust that's been like helping drive a lot of the preparation for uh, 2028. And so, like, uh, you know, especially in in the work that I've been involved with with No Olympics, the thing that I've seen a lot specifically as a preparation is trying to make room for hotels like in the Hollywood area and around mid city. And, uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, the places that they're trying to knock down to make way for hotels, uh, uh, are occupied currently by rent stabilized buildings. And then, uh, so you see a lot of, uh, uh, um, taking advantage of this legal loophole called the Ellis act, which, um, uh, which is like a loophole in LA city law that says like you can't 
evict people from a rent-stabilized building unless you plan to demolish it for a hotel. So we're seeing a lot of people, uh, you know, trying to fight off evictions for the sake of hotels. Um, Stephen, I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you uh, give a little bit more details if you want to about like LA 1984 stuff around that. LA 84 Foundation is a ghoulish assembly of just some of the worst people in this city. Um, it was founded from the LA 84 Olympics. I talked about from an LA perspective, why they are so fucked up. But uh, from a national perspective, they're pretty fucked up too. Um, the head of it was Peter Uberoff, who was a Ronald Reagan lackey and is probably best known uh, among sports fans as becoming the commissioner of baseball pretty much right after this 84 uh, presidency or whatever, whatever, whatever he was that he held down. Um, his his uh, baseball commissionership is nothing short of an unmitigated disaster, um, essentially pushing like one strike rules for cocaine usage that destroyed untold amounts of lives um, and young men playing baseball, the whole Pittsburgh Pirates team. I can go on and on about that forever, but it's Peter Uberoff. It's a bunch of Reagan's people from like senatorial, from, from gubernatorial uh, California day. And it's a foundation now that claims to use the profit quote unquote profit uh, that was generated by the 84 Olympics to be used for youth sports. Um, but it would, you know, it would be one thing if people who I politically disagreed with um, or, 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 or Reaganites were really doing something for youth sports, but that is, of course, not what they're doing. A um, microscopic percentage, like truly horrific percentage of the money that the LA 84 operates with um, is going to youth sports initiatives. What is not a microscopic amount is the amount that they invest into things like uh, BlackRock, um, other uh, other just massive uh, financial institutions that have led to the homelessness crisis out here, the unhoused crisis out here, um, pretty much directly investing into capital funds that buy up all the available housing stock around here. Um, and among other things, covered for folks like um, Larry Nasser, who was the head of the uh, USA Gymnastics uh, team that was brought down due to rampant and unapologetic uh, sexual assault of gymnasts and have just generally been a deflector for any anti-Olympic criticism um, with this veil of youth sports which is just particularly evil to use kids when you're using so little of that money toward actually bettering them. And to go even further on that, we're talking about the whole look at the city of LA issue. Look at what's happening in LA right now, specifically the fact that 20% of kids at LAUSD public schools are sleeping on the streets, do not have like a, a permanent address. Um, and looking at the number of young people that are getting killed by the LAPD in this pandemic, and to say that what we need to do is really improve the conditions of youth sports, of like privatized soccer leagues and softball and swimming conditions is pretty perverse to me. Yeah, it's not like they're trying to invest in like schools where like kids, you know, you know, like public schools where kids are trying to play sports. It's just like, let's have, you know, let's have another uh, club, a soccer club for, you know, Braden and, and Tucker, you know, to play soccer at. The part about the Olympics that most of us don't hear about then it sounds like it entails evictions, displacement, and the incarceration of the unhoused. Am I missing anything? Let me throw this to you, Stephen. Man, for sure. The, um, the Olympics are not subtle. They have a huge body count, and they <laughs> seem to be proud of showing it off. Approximately 77,000 people were displaced, um, almost all of Aboriginal and Original Brazilian uh, descent were displaced in the favelas in the 2016 build to Rio. That is um, an unconscionable amount of people moved for stadiums that are now collecting dust. In London in 2012, my girlfriend was living there at the time when it happened. I'm pretty sure since either 2012 or 2010, uh, when the buildup you know, really ramped up, rents in that city have literally doubled. Um, and that's not, for, for every one vanity issue that is and quality of life issue, um, that equals death, that equals putting more people on the streets, displacing people um, in the name of building stadiums and, and creating a public party that has a very privatized reward. Um, 
I I would just look at Tokyo right now. Some eighty percent percentage is in the eighties for disapproval of this event by uh, by people themselves. We're not even just talking about consensus around the world or consensus among the left community. Residents in Tokyo in those briefings here said they did not want it overwhelmingly, and this was during a time where "quote unquote" listening to science was the perceived liberal, you know, neoliberal way to go. That, that there was no reason why these games should have been happening while the pandemic was not fully contained. And they still found a way to make it happen. We're not going to know how many people got sick in Tokyo, let alone how many people were displaced, put on the street for even a short amount of time, and then facing a disease that <laughs> that Olympics just brought in there for them to then reconcile with and survive. A note to our loyal listeners, if you love the Southpaw Project, Please support us and help us get paid for our labor, by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, it'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod. And you know what's what's interesting now, talking about Tokyo, is that, uh, you know, you made me realize that, uh, remember that one of the main benefits, I guess, uh, ostensible benefits, to doing the Olympics for the city is you can sort of use it as a way to prove that like things are under control and your city is nice and clean and civilized in your country. Um, because before the, the pandemic hit, the Tokyo Olympics was being uh, pitched as the uh, Fukatsu uh, Olympic or like the Revival Olympics, specifically referring to uh, revival after the Fukushima um, uh, nuclear power plant explosion. So they, you know, bef- they, uh, there was a part time where they were trying to have some of the um, some of the games, some of the competitions held in Fukushima Prefecture, and when a lot of the uh, sit- people living there especially around the vicinity of the of the meltdown who a lot of them were like older people um were not getting a lot of financial assistance to like either relocate or help rebuild their homes or just figure out if it was even safe to go back to their houses just there were a lot of people being left uh, like the actual people suffering from the effects of this uh disaster were just being sort of erased in the media narrative and instead, it was like there was this outward, you know, uh, focus to the international community of like everything's under control. In fact, in fact, I believe um, uh, Abe Shinzo, the prime minister, like literally used the words under control. I forgot if he said this in English or in Japanese, but he used the phrase under control to talk about the situation in Fukushima to like justify why they were proceeding with the Olympics and pitching it as this recovery Olympics. And then to go back to the whole displacement and housing thing. I want to talk uh, a little bit about um, what I did when I was in Tokyo in 2019. One of the groups that we've been working with uh, in Tokyo uh, is this group. It's called Hangori no Kai, which means like the anti-Olympic society. And what what's amazing to me about um, uh, Hangori no Kai, as opposed to like some of uh, other like activist groups I've been a part of in the U.S. is that a lot of people in Hangori no Kai are themselves homeless. Like in in uh, in um, in Tokyo, in multiple parks in Tokyo, and I think it's really good to uh, to be aware of this for people who might think of like you know Japan is always having this like you know generally elevated standard of living and being like you know this utopian giant robot cat girl happy place but it's like in a lot of parks in tokyo there are these like communities of like homeless people these tent cities that like they're almost like that like that a lot of people have like built like uh 
Uh, there's one that I went into that a lot of the Hangorin members live in that it's like they've built like mailboxes and they actually get mail delivered to them. And it's like these people are very like they've just they might be uh, and some of them are even like educated from the professional managerial class who just like they cannot cope with like actually trying to live you know, in the normal uh, wage earning life in Japan, or they're elderly and just couldn't like keep up working. But, but but anyway, these are these communities of like people who have been there in that park for like, some of them like decades even. And so it's only with the Olympics now that in order to pitch this sort of sparkling, clean, sterile image of like, you know, Japan is a giant hotel for international people to come. That's clean. You know, now they're just like, we got to force these people out. We got to put, we got to, we got to fence off all the parks. We got to remove the tent cities. We don't care where you go. You just have to go. So, uh, what's been really, I mean, it's, it's been really cool to work with, you know, groups where it's like really the protagonists of the struggle are actively organizing themselves and reaching out to international efforts for solidarity. But it also just like, it is just so bizarre, like ghoulish, you know, we keep going back to that word, uh, how, how it's just like, there's no attempt to provide, like help the people that are getting moved. It's just all this ignoring the people who aren't bringing in the money, ignoring the people who aren't like going to help raise Japan's international, uh, profile and just letting, basically leaving them to die in a ditch. So that way they can build like, you know, parks and facilities and stuff that as we've seen in other places where the Olympics have been held, oftentimes then are abandoned and left to rot. And in fact, the only, the only Olympic building that I think still gets really used that was built specifically for the Olympics is the bird's nest in Beijing. Uh, but, uh, but like, you know, I Rio and, and Sochi and stuff like people get displaced, these buildings get put up. And then after the Olympics, they're just left and abandoned. And those people left to die in a ditch just still get to die in a ditch. Does the Olympics also harm the environment? I mean, undoubtedly, in the sense that it, uh, even for quote-unquote no-build Olympics, it necessitates a lot of construction work. Um, it necessitates necessitates um, travel from, from all around the world, the destruction of buildings. Um, I mean... I, I would I would generally say that anything that results in uh, more people on the streets and more people unhoused and uh, and in safe conditions leads to environmental degradation. Um, it almost seems like it's a cycle. The Atlanta Olympics in '96 I know were brought in to revitalize the city to give an image of a of a thriving metropolis. Um, but in order to do that, you need to go take a lot of people out of their public housing and take a lot of other people on the streets and put them in jail. And now you have this problem again, which just continues to exacerbate the problem. And for an environmental movement that is, of course, deeply committed to not kicking the can down the road and addressing things now, as opposed to not the next generation, um, we can't consign a whole nother generation of people um, to live shelterless um, to live out in the streets and to be casualties of entertainment and and struck you know structure erupting erecting um, it it it's it's it all seems linked together to me. To go back to Tokyo uh, specifically, uh, there is there has been uh, one incident of environment of specifically environmental concern that happened earlier this year, which was you know in order to get ready for the Olympics, you know they still wanted to try and like figure out how to quickly clean up um race waste from the fukushima disaster and so earlier this year in april 2021 uh japan decided that uh they were going to dump uh 1 million tons of contaminated water from f- from the nuclear plant just into the ocean and uh there you know there was like they it, they they treated it and diluted it so that radiation levels are below the like i'm reading the story from bbc about it and, and they say like the water will be treated and diluted so radiation levels are below those set for drinking water and it's like i mean i don't believe you <laughs> like well it's one of those things where it's like they say that it'll be safe and then years from now we'll be we'll you know we'll discover you know there's there's some kind of long lasting negative fallout but like just that's an example of the kinds of like you know stuff that that gets rushed 
you know, because especially because the Olympics always happen, you know, they're they're always going to happen on this specific set timetable that then things get rushed and stuff and, you know, any kind of infrastructural stuff that gets rushed, especially in regards to the environment, is not going to be done well or safely. One of the names that has been used for the Olympics, I think, by environmental activists has been Dirty Olympics. I think historically, maybe not so much for L.A., but historically, deforestation has been a part of the Olympics, especially like the Winter Olympics. Oh, yeah. They end up cutting down a lot of trees. So the Olympics, to me, reminds me of like a festive nuclear bomb that goes off in a city that only harms poor people, the unhoused, and the environment. Yeah, it's like an economic neutron bomb. So then why would a city want to have the Olympics? I would say I think the incentive structure is uh, <clears throat> is pretty pretty there. <laughs> um, you have um, billionaires looking to create some sort of legacy in sports and entertainment. You have elected officials and uh, other other people of the state who will not be serving their term in power by the time that the consequences for this really come around. And um, you have a way to build unity in, in, in a pretty perverse sense, of course. But all the people who are on the other side of the oppression, these people's minds, uh, get to celebrate. Get to celebrate being an American to them, maybe. Being an Angelino, uh, maybe. But in reality, just a, a, a celebration of not, not having your life, you know, completely fucking upended by forces of the state. And... Obviously, I think that's subconscious, but that is when we talk about unity and we talk about you know events where 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 sports or et cetera use use the public space for the greater good. It's it's drawing class lines and it's enforcing you know no matter how mad we might be at these billionaires right now, we're all on the same team at the end of the day. Um, and just obviously. Um, there's a lot of incentive. There's a lot of there's a lot of reasons, especially for someone like Garcetti uh, in a city like L.A. that is so thirsty and and, and rapidly obsessed um, with kind of celebrity verification and being liked. Um, there's a lot of reasons why a city would want to host it. Um, I think above all else, the city is not used to the will of the people actually being heard out, um, and I don't think they're used to organized oppositions. <laughs> so why wouldn't you why wouldn't you try this you know i i that's how i see it seems like the main two ways that people make money off of the olympics is via real estate and through media and so then you mentioned two names caruso who's a huge real estate magnate and then wasserman who is probably also involved in real estate but also a huge media magnate so there's a potential to make so much money off of that, of course, you're going to grease the wheels and the Olympics will want to play ball and politicians will want to play ball with you as well, not just for kickbacks, but also the favors that will be owed. I, I could just, just say to that, they're like <clears throat> specifically Rick Caruso, but the, the, the ruling powers, that's, that, that kind of has been their playbook. Rick Caruso's father uh, came up on a dollar rent-a-car like criminal conspiracy thing. He literally faced criminal conspiracy for forgery and grand theft. Um, you don't create a massive uh, dollar rent-a-car empire without probably being the type of guy that thinks that you can impose your will on anything and everything and not face consequence for it. And I I mean, he also is a major funder of, I'll say it again, like a major funder of Mitch McConnell, which kind of you know, can become cliche to talk about, but at the end of the day is a pretty obvious manifestation of no consequences. I get brutish power at all, at all costs and you, and you'll pay me for it later. Um, it's the same attitude. And I think it's just that attitude getting grifted on to Los Angeles now because the Caruso name with USC, with the Grove development, it's big enough to, for him to really feel entitled to this. But he comes from somebody who just bullied people <laughs> and did grand theft. And that is still what he's doing now. It still looks like that. And I think a lot of people don't associate Mitch McConnell, even with the rich elites of LA. You know, there's this kind of liberal bias where they believe there's good rich people and bad rich people and LA rich people are the good kind of rich people or California rich people are the good kind of rich people. And it's like, 
they're in bed with the same Southern conservatives, just like every other rich guy. Oh, yeah. I mean, L.A. is a city where rich people come to party, even politicians, you know, so it's like, yeah, you know, I mean, they're probably not going to be, you know, uh, be seen in all the same magazines, you know, and stuff. But it's like, yeah, people like Mitch McConnell, people like, you know, uh, 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 other ghouls. Sorry, (laughs) I don't know why names are not Paul Ryan, you know, other 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 different ghouls, handsome and ugly, like to come to this city just because it's a place where, you know, you can, if you're rich, you can get a beachfront house or a beachfront, you know, timeshare or whatever, and, and just enjoy, enjoy that no matter what else happens in your hometown. It's like the old Pokemon game, Pokemon Red, Pokemon Blue. It's the same game, but it just came in different covers. Also, like, don't, don't sleep on how much of the modern conservative movement that, like, literally is rooted in California not just Nixonism and Reagan as governor and all of Reaganism, but go look up a, a guy by the name of Howard Jarvis and his, uh, his, his uh, tax movement, which has led to pretty, pretty draconian property tax beliefs and, and, and perverse ways of funding things out here publicly. Go look at the recall that we're facing now, the recall that was faced in 04 for moderate, moderate neoliberal like technocracy, really moderate. Um, it is in a lot of ways the birthplace of, of, you know, proud boyism and, and modern conservatism. We might not associate it with evangelicism and other like cultural markers or aesthetic markers of conservatism, but it should not surprise people that a good amount of the rich and powerful out here are registered Republicans and that even if they're not, that they still, um, hold actively harmful beliefs and and do things that actively undermine the world. Something that this podcast has talked a lot about is the intellectual dark web and the new right, meaning like Gen X and younger. And a lot of the media people that came out of that came from LA or are still in LA and specifically Santa Monica seemed to proliferate a lot of these types of grifters and influencers. Dude, for sure. Uh, Stephen Miller's from Santa Monica. Ben Shapiro was loudly talking about living in Echo Park um, or wherever he lives, Silver Lake. And didn't Tommy Loren? Yeah, and Tommy. Yeah, yeah. She like publicized that she was leaving LA for Nashville. And then you got Breitbart. You got Steve Bannon. No, all these, all these fucking sickos. You know, we all we all live in the LA area, all three of us. But it's like for any listeners who's who's who've never lived in or actually been to the LA area. It's like, you do not have to drive that far out of LA city to find like mostly conservative areas. Like basically if you go down towards the beach cities, like I, I went down to like, um, I was driving down to, uh, uh, Costa Mesa, uh, to go to the beach with some friends of mine who lived down that area. And I drove past like a pro Trump anti-masker rally, you know, it's, it's like, it's like LA is only like a progressive bastion in the sense that like, yeah, a lot of, you know, non-white people concentrate in this urban area and thus, you know, will advocate for their interests, you know, so that is the one mitigating um, uh, factor. But it's like there it, we're sort of like the, in, in California, you know, aside from like, you know, San Francisco LA, you know, maybe like San Jose and down or like, you know, San Diego, San Jose areas, like, it's like a lot, it's, it's like very much a red state. And it's just so it's like the people, you know, who have the actual political and economic power, you know, in the urban areas, you know, definitely share more in common politically with those types than the people over which they govern. The movie American History X, it takes place in LA for a reason because that type of white nationalism was and still is very big in LA, depending on what parts of LA. If you actually like start learning about like politics and history, you really start to see through how like the whole like, oh, the liberal Hollywood media elite like is such is such like transparent, just bullshit culture war flim flammery to just like people in the media try to say, try to say that other people in the same media class are their enemies when they're all hanging out with each other anyway. Wasn't, um, 
This is this is a fighting podcast. Um, wasn't Tito Ortiz uh, Huntington Beach City Council Mayor Pro Tem up until very recently? Yes, he was. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think that <laughs> I think that really honestly sums it up pretty uh, pretty well. I think for a lot of people, including myself, we get very confused about what exactly the Olympics is because I think some people are like, is it a governmental body? Is it like part of the United Nations? So what is it? How is it organized? Is it ultimately a multinational company? Just in 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 short, this is not this is this is not governed by <laughs> the United Nations or uh, or anything like that. This is uh, at the whims uh, and the purview of the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, um, which. If you do uh, even a pretty cursory Google search, you will find some pretty unflattering, unflattering stuff. A pretty, a pretty gross uh, concentration of uh, of global elite um, that quite literally came from Nazism. Quite literally came from about Nazi era Germany. Um, yeah, the uh, Thomas Bach, who's the current Bach, I believe, current uh, current president of the IOC, has his own troubles as well. But in short, it's a it's a group of people who have preserved power at all costs. They're not necessarily uh, responsible to anybody. For example, the IOC, uh, if 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 this event goes over budget, the IOC is not compensating an area for going over budget. The IOC itself does not have a budget. Um, it is about the efficacy of an MLB or NFL commissioner. Um, somebody who they themselves do not do any of the labor and they themselves don't even do any of the any of the structural work in presenting teams and creating competition they just get to reside over the spending and the regulation uh and the maintenance of the rules of the games i also think it bears to say that like for anybody who doesn't know you know they're called the olympics but the Olympics, as we know, there is no direct line that traces the history of this game back to, you know, uh, you know, ancient Greece or whatever. The Olympics, as we know them now, were started in like the in like the 1900s in Europe. Like I believe the first modern Olympiad was in Paris by like, yeah, a bunch of a groups of like literal aristocrats and like monarchs and, and like landed gentry and nobility who were just like. Uh, you know, they they were like the equivalent then of all the people, all like the white supremacists on Twitter with like avatars of Roman marble busts. They're just like, oh, ancient Roman Greece, they were the pinnacle of white society. Let's revive those games and pretend we're back there. No, liter- literally, the, the, the founder of the IOC is Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who uh, was a French aristocrat with exactly the kind of name that you would hope he would have, uh, who looks just like what you think he would look like. Um, he said some pretty unsavory things about um, people of color, about women, and about poor folks. That the Olympics were essentially a, uh, uh, an exercise in uh, refocusing and redisciplining um, our youth. I have a quote here directly about women's sports: calls them impractical, uninteresting, unesthetic, and we're not afraid to add incorrect. <laughs> so that's the founder of the IOC. Um, whose legacy was once again, like Angel said, um, restoring nobility, discipline, class, etc., to the people. That that's kind of the legacy. The IOC is the offshoot of this guy. It's kind of like what Mussolini tried, trying to unearth the old Rome of uh, Western civilization, right? Because things were too multicultural. Things were not European enough. Things were not this old guard enough, right? It kind of reminds me of that show, The Boys, where the main bad guy company is Vought. And it was started by Nazis, but enough time has passed and they've sophisticated themselves as being more like a CNBC capitalist company. And so people forgot the origins of the company and how they accumulated that wealth was Nazis. It's so good. It's just like that. Yeah, you, it, it, it makes sense that like... The Olympics, you know, as we know them now, were created at a time where it was like white supremacy really was clinging to this re- this misinterpretation and reconstruction of Hellenic Greece, you know, and ancient Rome as these like, you know, bastions of white society as we think of it now. 
And, and, you know, that's like the, the whole like academic field of classical studies was, you know, sort of being created at this moment, at, at the, at that moment in time and being spearheaded by, you know, people who were, un, you know, unapologetic white supremacists. So, uh, you know, it definitely was, you know, it makes sense that, you know, something that still bears the name Olympics in the 20th century would sort of, you know, just it, it like to the very marrow, you know, bears that legacy of just like, you know, imperious of, of like 20th century white supremacist imperiousness. And as far as how it's legally structured, it sounds like it's more structured like one of those uh, European summits for the wealthiest, richest people and economists to show up and come together to do, you know, thinking about the world and becoming thought leaders. Like the G20. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. And if you think about it, the athletes who um, who have livelihood in, in formalized professional sports, they don't like the Olympics. It's as a basketball fan, like it's a running joke, like how few how few NBA hoopers like really give a damn about the Olympics. To my knowledge, I'm sure Angel or Sam, um, not much of the soccer guy, um, but to my understanding, like the Olympics are not nearly as significant as other major cups and championships and titles. And you know what I'm saying? And like you're even the, the FIFA World Cup. Like I think a lot of what the 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 grace and nobility and our, you know, uh, integrity of what we talk about is kind of just a holding captive of other sports. Um, women's gymnastics are not making, you know, comparable and fair salaries and getting that level of attention through domestic infrastructure. Their way to do it is exclusively through the Olympics. Same as college sports, which kind of gets to hold something captive and, and perpetuate its deeply unethical and amoral behavior because, you know, gymnasts, uh, wrestlers, as you mentioned, Angel, um, curlers, <laughs> decathletes, uh, swimmers, all types of folks who make their bread and butter and earn their um, their athletic bona fides. The only way they can do that is through participation in the Olympics. We don't have to be displacing people for that for that to be done. We don't have to be um, doing a, a world tour of of uh, of terror and and financial albatross invasion and invasion community invasion you know people mention all the time like do we hate sports fuck no we don't hate sports yeah if you like sports you should want to see an athlete community alternative to what we're doing because right now you're on the same side as the anti-player empowerment people Right now, if you're Olympics, you're taking the same side as the ownership instead of the players. And uh, you're taking Roger Goodell instead of your favorite quarterback or, or defensive lineman or whoever. It's gross. And yeah, as of right now, the, the highest level of, of accomplishment is for, for, uh, for a lot of people, both men and women, in their sport to go participate in the Olympics. But an alternative is possible, and it does not have to be as costly and destructive as the one that's given to us right now. The Olympics has such like a brand monopoly, you know, if not like a functional monopoly on uh, amateur sports that like even other amateur sports that are like trying to build some kind of legitimacy as like an international competitive sport, they always end up having some kind of like, you know, char something in their charter or their governance that like has to mention like direction towards like building it up as an olympic sport like you know i i i was an amateur sumo wrestler for a few years that can be another episode but it's like amateur sumo uh is governed by like the international sumo uh sumo federation that's based in tokyo but it's like it, you know it says right in the charter that's like one of the one of the big like like the basically like one of the driving forces of the shaping of the rules of you know of standard uh, competitive international sumo is like trying to build it as an Olympic sport. So all these, we, we introduce all these different rules to make it accessible enough so that it can be an Olympic sport. Well, I mean, which, which, you know, in and of itself might not be bad, but it's just like, why should that be the only reason why you then add like weight classes and women's divisions and, you know, uh, allow people to have like covering under the Moashi. It's like, it's like people think that it, it, it is, I mean, I guess, I guess like, think you know, there is this idea that like in order for an amateur 
any international amateur sport to grow, it has to like hitch its wagon somehow to the Olympics. And just that it has the monopoly, it has a monopoly on, in addition to amateur sports, on like the, on the idea of international competition. Yeah. In Europe, they have, again, soccer, they have, they have tournaments where countries get to compete for their side, for their glory, um, with, with their people and an entire nation can rally around and, you know, against whatever, like we have a deeply Americanized way of doing sports, but like the Olympics are not the only way when people argue, um, how good it is for multiculturalism, how noble it is, how it brings us together. Like sports do that. We, this can be done. The Olympics do not get to own the idea of like solidarity through sports at a national level. Just right now it happens to be that. So the Olympics is also monopolistic. Absolutely. Very much so. I think this is a lot for us to chew on. Thank you both for your time and for coming on the show. Steven, do you have anything you want to plug? Yes. Um, for no Olympians, folks interested in the uh, anti-Olympic solidarity movement, specifically in the LA area, please hit us up at no Olympics LA on all the handles, noolympicsla.com. We are tying our organizing work to anti-eviction and anti-gentrification work in the city. Even if you're thinking now the Olympics are so far away, we're doing stuff with the Ellis Act that Angel mentioned and tenant organizing and um, all types of stuff that we would love to plug folks in on. Um, on a personal level, uh, just look me up, Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N-L-O-U-I-S, nine, that's the number nine, three, that's the number three. Um, I am the director of development and co-founder of an organization called Edify, E-D-I-F-Y-E, essentially from families of police violence looking to connect the tremendous cultural capital that pro athletes have, the honor they take and wear in their cities across the chest, plugging them into, instead of charities, um, mutual aid, uh, abolitionist work, and uh, grassroots organizers to really move the needle most effectively. I'll put all that in the show notes. And as far as no Olympics, is this something that people can still involve themselves with or join? All the time. Yeah. I mean, we have we have canvassing efforts specifically for our campaign called Walks on My Block. Airbnb is a uh, international partner of the Olympics. And needless to say, that is uh, that's a that's the, you know, Lob City, Chris Paul to Blake Griffin, Alley of Gentrification Force. But we are going around in addition to trying to identify areas that are being rented out illegally as Airbnbs and organize uh, tenants under the Ellis Act. We are also just generally always talking about the Olympics, doing all types of things like this media appearance, getting the word out. So just because you're not here to actually canvas or join us in the streets or yell at Casey <laughs> Wasserman's uh, enterta- entertainment media office in, in downtown LA does not mean that you can't participate um, this is going to be a war of like winning a narrative and winning information. They have the power, they have the historical infrastructure, and they have the uh, things that our society deems the most, you know, the most sacred. Um, but we have the people, and we need to spread the word. However, we can. We're making digital content all the time. You can always find ways to plug people in, even if they're not in LA. And just like be aware that it could happen in your city too. Like literally it could happen in your city too. And not even just the Olympics though. Like think like, you know, anybody listening to this, think about how this kind of same organizational model can be applied to any other kind of like major spectacle coming to your city. That's probably going to fuck things up, you know, like a Super Bowl or a big concert, you know, like if you're in Austin, you know, maybe SXSW probably fucks things up for you. I don't personally know, but maybe, maybe the no Olympics model could be used to organize around that. Um, I, d- I don't have a specific grudge against SXSW. That's just what came to mind. <laughs> yeah, just an example. And for you, Angel. Well, I uh, specifically quit using most social media formats a while ago, so I don't have anything individual to plug. But Sam, you and I have a project coming up uh, that we're going to be working on together. Shall I plug that? Yeah, please. Well, Southpaw listeners. Sam has uh, finally started embarking on a journey that I've been, uh, me and other Southpaw Dankies have been uh, prodding him to I- explore, which is uh, Star Trek. Uh, so he is going to begin watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is, you know, arguably the best Star Trek series. And we are starting a podcast called, I believe the title is just Southpaw Deep Space Nine, where every episode, Sam and I watch 
an episode of Deep Space Nine, and I sort of, I as a veteran and inveterate Star Trek fan, who's, uh, who's, my brain carries around just obnoxious amounts of facts and trivia and, uh, and opinions. Uh, I'm going to answer, answer his questions and sort of guide his analysis about, um, how, uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine is, you know, as, as a famous, uh, communist, uh, Trek fan online, Will Nguyen puts it, the most communist, uh, Star Trek series. So stay tuned for that on, uh, I think that it is, is that going to be like part of the official Southpaw, uh, network, Sam? Yes. So stay tuned for it to be available wherever Southpaw's available. <laughs> Thanks for the plug. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a 5-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pauls. Hitting with the left. South Pauls. Sam. Paul. South Paul. South Paul. South Paul.